0: You don't believe in the paranormal, but a shiver sweeps through your body as the trees thin and you glimpse the hulking, gothic building at the top of the hill. The setting sun sends light, the color of rusty blood, streaming through the forlorn sanatorium's many doors and windows. During the tour, your friend keeps tugging on the back of your shirt and then pretending that it wasn't them. You know they're just hassling you since you were reluctant to come. Sure, the vast building with its maze of graffitied, crumbling rooms is intriguing, but you're mentally rolling your eyes at the tour guide's hokey stories. Later, you have time to explore on your own. Defaced walls, stained ceilings, rusted shelves, A miasma of despair seems to hang in the air. You trail your friend from room to room as they test out their EVP recorder. This time, the tug on your shirt is so strong, you accidentally drop your phone, turning the flashlight off. Your friend is nowhere near you. You lean down to scoop up your phone, and a small leather ball rolls to a stop at your feet. You straighten up, to see a little girl in an old-fashioned dress at the end of the hallway. She steps a little closer into a pool of moonlight and silently holds out a hand for her ball. You can see her clearly. Two inky black voids where her eyes should be. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the eerie Waverly Hills Sanatorium and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other shows on your favorite podcast directory. The forbidding Waverly Hills Sanatorium stands just off the Dixie Highway in southwest Louisville, Kentucky. Waverly Hills is mentioned with bated breath and reverence by ghost hunters amateur and professional alike. This melancholy brick-and-stone building has been the scene of great pain, suffering, and death. And much of that turmoil is said to haunt the building to this day. It's considered to be one of the most haunted places in America, if not the world. (coughs) Just after the turn of the 19th century, Tuberculosis swept through Louisville to devastating effect. The city's swampy climate created the perfect conditions for the highly contagious bacteria to grow. Tuberculosis kills most of its hosts by destroying the lungs, gradually suffocating the victim. Over time, it can spread to bones and other organs painfully. Prior to the 1940s, tuberculosis had no cure. Fresh air, sunlight, and proper nutrition were thought to be the best treatment for the disease. But for all their efforts, the disease's mortality rate was frighteningly high. Waverly Hills Sanatorium opened on October 17, 1926, five stories tall, about 180,000 square feet, with modern comforts such as phones and an audio system. The medical facility was designed to accommodate four to five hundred patients. One of the main features of the sanatorium were the large solariums on each floor, where patients could bask in the sunshine. Waverly Hills also had a sizable kitchen and dining hall, an auditorium where movies were shown, and a library. Its X-ray lab, surgery ward, and pediatric ward put it at the forefront of TB facilities in the U.S. The Waverly Hills property was a self-sustaining community that grew its own food and had its own post office and utility systems. An army of medical and support staff lived on site along with the patients. Patients in the early stages of tuberculosis were able to take classes, such as typing, the hope being that they would have a skill once they recovered and left Waverly Hills. Unfortunately, Most patients didn't leave the way they planned. Willa fingered the four-leaf clover pin on her robe. Mother had given it to her as a 13th birthday present during Visitor's Day. She promised next year Willa would be home and they'd throw her a party. But Willa saw the worry in her mother's eyes. She wasn't getting better. It had been the same routine, day in and day out, the last ten months. Today, Willa needed the Clover's luck. She was going for surgery, a desperate attempt to stall her fate. Willa felt sleepy as she breathed in the gas. She was drifting, her eyes closing. A nurse started a stopwatch. Dr. Baker took a scalpel and drew it down the center of Willa's torso blood welled up. Somehow, Willa felt a faint pain burning at her chest. It grew stronger as Dr. Baker peeled her skin back. Willa tried to scream for them to stop. She wasn't asleep, but she couldn't move, couldn't make a sound. A sharp pain jolted through her as Dr. Baker used a hammer and chisel to crack her chest. Then... She felt a dull, burning ache as he cut two of her ribs. Willa's body convulsed. As blood spurted from her chest, she felt every vein twitch. A nurse pinned down Willa's flailing arms, while a second nurse threw herself across Willa's lower half to hold her still. Willa foamed at the mouth. Dr. Baker turned her head sideways so she wouldn't choke. He listened to her chest. No heartbeat. Dr. Baker performed CPR. Willa's skin stung, and she gasped for breath. All of a sudden, she was free. She was suddenly hovering on the ceiling, looking down at herself on the surgery table. She watched in horror as they tried to revive her limp body, pushing against her exposed heart, squirting blood out of the wound. Dr. Baker announced the time of her death. A dazed Willa floated down to touch her body. Her arm was cool, flabby, devastated. Willa trailed behind the orderly as he pushed the gurney carrying her body down a hallway. She followed them as they unlocked a heavy door with a massive lock. They pushed her body into the room and turned on the lights, dull fluorescence revealing body after body, hanging from hooks in the ceiling. She watched orderlies lift her corpse, piercing her feet on the hooks. Her blood poured from her open chest onto the floor, running through grooves to the drain in the center of the room. After hours, the bleeding stopped. Her flesh was pallid and drained. They pulled her off the hooks and moved on. In the morgue, Willa watched two orderlies wash her body. She winced when they carelessly banged her head on a table. In a small tunnel, orderlies loaded the bodies onto the rail car. Until she couldn't. Just at the end of the chute, there seemed to be an invisible wall. Some force blocking her from leaving the sanatorium. Willa watched helplessly as her body was loaded into a hearse. Willa stood at the door, not sure what to do. Then a cold hand slipped into hers. Willa looked down to see a little boy. Another hand touched her shoulder. Willa was surrounded by ghosts. There were others who couldn't leave the sanatorium either. Most of the surgical procedures for treating tuberculosis were brutal and barbaric. Anesthesia was limited, and results could be unstable. One surgery involved doctors pushing balloons into the lungs to expand infected lung cavities. Another common treatment, thoracoplasty, which involved removing a patient's ribs, was giving infected lungs more room to breathe. Sometimes, over seven or eight ribs were removed over the course of three or four surgeries, allowing the patient to recuperate in between each procedure. Probably the most dangerous operation involved opening a patient's chest and exposing their lungs to UV light, which was thought to kill TB bacteria on the lungs. These surgeries inevitably failed. And in the early days of the sanatorium, hearses would pull up to the front doors to wheel away the dead. However, as more patients died, the hearses arrived more and more frequently, casting a grim pall on those patients who still held hope for recovery. In order to avoid this blow to morale, doctors started removing corpses from the sanatorium through the body chute. The body chute was a small railway tunnel that was initially built to transport cargo up the hill to the sanatorium. But it was quickly determined to be a perfect method of discreetly disposing of bodies. The tunnel was approximately 500 feet long, and it had a set of stairs running alongside the rail cable system. Currently, visitors can only walk halfway down these stairs. As the far end of the tunnel collapsed, Sometime in the early 2000s. Many people have experienced a wide range of paranormal activity in the body chute. Visitors have seen mysterious shadows and heard voices. Some visitors have been pushed or punched or had their hair pulled. Sometimes the ghosts have specifically invited the visitor to come closer, all the way down to the end of the tunnel. We'll continue our tour through Waverly Hills after this. And now, back to the story. In the first half of the 20th century, when tuberculosis patients were shunned or treated with paranoia, Waverly Hills offered a peaceful place where they could thrive and hopefully recover. However, like in any other community, complicated relationships arose. Alan, the new doctor, sure was swell. Mary nearly dropped the thermometer she was handing him when she looked into his warm brown eyes. At dinner, she casually asked the other nurses about Alan. He was an intern, newly arrived to complete his medical studies at Waverly. Soon, their lingering glances turned into lingering kisses. Mary knew it was wrong. Alan was married, but his wife was back home, several states away. Besides, he told Mary she was his true love, even if they had to keep it a secret. One morning, the smell of coffee began making Mary sick. She hid it for as long as she could, perhaps out of shame, perhaps out of the intuition that her news wouldn't entirely be welcome. But she finally told her lover when her pregnancy was beginning to show. Alan didn't take it well. For days he avoided her. Other staff began to notice. Rumors spread. But then he apologized and told her that they could go out west and be a family. So Mary packed, hoping for the best. She hummed to her baby, quelling the small wave of dread she felt about Alan's plan. Late that night, she was supposed to meet him at room number 502, but then rough hands yanked Mary into the exam room. Mary bit the gloved hand covering her mouth. She struggled hard, but two men pinned her arms behind her back. Another gloved hand plunged a syringe into her arm, Numbness quickly began spreading up her shoulder. As Mary began to go limp, she looked up at the man who administered the shot. Above his surgical mask, Alan's eyes stared back at her, cold and flat. They dragged Mary over to an examination table and hoisted her onto it. Mary wanted to beg. She'd leave, raise the baby alone. Wouldn't tell a soul. They didn't have to do this. But all that came from her numb lips was whimpering. She still had some feeling in her body. The air was chilly when they pulled her dress up and forced her legs apart. They pushed something sharp and cold inside her. Tears coursed down her cheeks at the excruciating pain as they cut the life from her womb. One of the men cursed. She was losing too much blood. It had gone wrong. They carried Mary out into the hallway. They looped a rope around a pipe hanging from the ceiling and tied it tight. They dragged a chair into position. They hoisted Mary up, making her stand on the chair, securing the rope around her neck. Mary jerked as the chair went out from under her. The weight of her body swung on the rope. As her vision faded, the last thing she ever saw was her former lover creeping down the hallway, leaving her to die. In 1928, nurse Mary Hillenberg was found hung just outside room number 502. Some believe she committed suicide when her married lover rejected her and her unborn child. Others insist that Mary's suicide was staged. A nurse who allegedly discovered her body found it odd that someone who died via hanging was also covered in blood. It was suspected Mary died during a forced abortion and her lover sought to cover up her murder. There are rumors that a fetus was found in the drainage system on the Waverly property. Around this time, others claim that the doctor hid the fetus in the morgue and smuggled it out of Waverly in a coffin belonging to a recently deceased TB patient. The evidence was buried when the patient was laid to rest by her family. But that wasn't the only tragedy in that room. A few years later, in 1932, a nurse allegedly jumped to her death leaping from a window in room number 502. Room number 502 seems to have a tangible presence of intense emotion, the anguish of a spectral Mary longing for her poor child, her hostility and rage towards her former sweetheart. Ghost hunting equipment has captured surges in energy, sudden temperature fluctuations, and ghostly voices talking in room number 502. Visitors have taken pictures in the room, capturing a ghostly woman, presumably Mary. Mediums claim to have communicated with Mary, learning the details of her murder. One medium claims that Mary's lover had three fellow doctors help him restrain Mary and perform the abortion. Yet Mary's tragedy was just one of many at Waverly Hills. Waverly Hill Sanatorium operated from 1926 until 1961. During the 1940s, advances in antibiotics resulted in a cure for tuberculosis. The facility closed when its patient population dwindled. Conservative estimates put the number of deaths that occurred at Waverly Hill Sanatorium at around 8,000 people. Others believe a much larger number of deaths occurred, in the range of 63,000. Unfortunately, patient records have been lost to rot and time. After the initial closure, the facility underwent some renovations and in 1962 reopened as the Woodhaven Geriatric Center, serving elderly patients with mobility and dementia issues. But soon, a few patients and staff members experienced odd things. They heard voices or glimpsed people dressed in old-fashioned clothing. Many of these rumors were dismissed as the ramblings of dementia patients, but other stories indicate that some patients may have not had dementia after all. Oscar purposely blocked the TV when he brought the medical cart to a halt in the sitting room. Grinning, he ignored the calls for him to move and announced that it was medicine time. He was just doing his duty to keep them healthy. He made the patients line up and take their pills, checking their mouths afterward to make sure they had swallowed. Last in line was Doris, with her beady brown eyes and crazy white hair. Oscar thought of her as a gossipy old busybody. She constantly talked about this being her second stay in the building, having lived there and beaten TB as a child. Her incessant talking made Oscar dislike her intensely. He was especially rough when checking Doris's mouth to make sure she swallowed. She stared at him afterward, then warned him that if he wasn't nice, he'd meet her friend. She'd been saying that to Oscar for weeks. He rolled his eyes. During the night shift, Oscar wandered down the hall, making the rounds. Up ahead, someone darted across the hallway. These seniors were never where they were supposed to be. Annoyed, Oscar jogged after the figure. But when he got to the spot where they had been, nobody was around. Oscar checked the doors to the exam rooms. They were all locked. This hallway was a dead end. God, it was like they disappeared. Oscar stopped to have a look at a collage that had been put up in the hallway. It featured photographs of some of the residents when they were young. A photo identified seven-year-old Doris hugging a friend she lost to TB. The two girls stood in front of Waverly Hills. They wore matching flowered dresses. The next week, it was yet another boring night shift. Oscar walked down the hall. This old place was so creepy and its population of living fossils didn't help. Twice more, Oscar had seen a mysterious figure that vanished while doing his rounds. Oscar tiptoed over to the door, Doris yakking away. She was supposed to be asleep. Oscar suddenly pushed the door open so hard it hit the far wall. Doris, who was sitting up in bed, jumped and clutched her chest. Oscar scolded Doris and told her it was past lights out. She needed to go to sleep. The old bat protested that she was talking to her friend. Oscar told her to stop making up stories. He reminded her that those who could not be trusted to sleep on their own were subject to assistance at his discretion. Doris started screaming. She told him he couldn't do this to her, not again. He grinned. Now that she was screaming, he could do anything he wanted. He walked over to the bed, reached under, and grabbed the cuffs attached to the bars at the bottom. Doris stood and started hobbling toward the door. She moved too slowly, her bones too frail to get far. Oscar grabbed her shoulder, squeezing tightly. Doris cried in pain, but followed him back to the bed. He forced her to lie down, clasping cuffs over her wrists and ankles, chaining her to the bed. She wailed all the while, shouting about her friend, telling Oscar her friend would help her if he didn't let her go. Oscar was tired of listening to this crazy old bat. He turned off the light before closing the door and walked away. A few days passed with nothing extraordinary happening, but one day when Oscar arrived at work, Doris had gone missing. She had skipped lunch, which meant that Oscar, too, had to skip lunch to look for her. He checked the sitting rooms, the second-floor solarium, all the exam rooms. After looking all over the place, Oscar found Doris on the fifth-floor patio. She sat there without a care in the world, mindlessly nodding to the breeze. Oscar, enraged he had missed his lunch, screamed at her. A sudden gust of strong wind caught Oscar by surprise. Doris looked at him. My friend says to be nice. The air grew colder and stronger, pushing Oscar towards the low stone wall that acted as a railing. In the gust, Oscar could just make out the outline of a young girl in an old-fashioned flowered dress. Doris's friend was angry. Oscar struggled to get off the patio and into the building, but the pushing wind was too strong. He kept stepping forward, but only moving back. His legs were almost up against the low cement railing that edged the patio. It was a long way down. He dropped to his knees and curled into the fetal position, body pressed against the railing, wind still tugging his hair. Oscar sobbed out an apology. The wind slowly dissipated. Doris smiled. Oscar quit on the spot. He never even picked up his last paycheck. In 1981, the state of Kentucky closed down Woodhaven Geriatric Center after an inspection found that the facility had hygiene problems and that patients were neglected and restrained. Furthermore, the staff was falsifying medical records. Since then, visitors have seen the ghost of an elderly woman running through the first floor, crying for help. Blood drips from her wrists and ankles, loosed by chafing from her chains. While no one knows who she is, it's thought that she's a patient from the Woodhaven era. We'll complete our tour of Waverly Hills Sanatorium after this, and now back to the story. In the early 1980s, a developer purchased Waverly Hills for about $3 million from the state of Kentucky, intending to turn the property into a minimum security prison. Nearby residents protested and the plan fell through. For the next 20 years, Waverly Hills went through several owners who had a variety of plans for repurposing the property, but none were able to make headway on their projects. Meanwhile, Waverly Hills became a place where daring Louisville residents, mainly teenagers, snuck in to explore, vandalize, and use drugs. The moon shone so brightly, they didn't even bother with flashlights as they approached Waverly Hills. To avoid security, they had parked and hiked the last half mile in. Mark was a little antsy about being caught, but Tim and Duncan weren't too worried. They had been to the hill many times without being spotted. Ten minutes later, Tim was in the zone working on his art. There was no better place for graffiti. He could hear Mark and Duncan in another room breaking stuff. They had brought a hatchet and Swiss Army knives. His radio suddenly let out a weird, high pitched burst of static. Tim shivered and looked around. Of course, he had heard stories about the hill. Who hadn't? But it's not like they had any other places where they could run free and break stuff. Duncan ran past the doorway yelling that security was coming. Tim scooped up his backpack and took off, leaving his half-finished masterpiece behind. He followed his fleeing friends, security hot on their heels. The boys ran into a room at the far end of the hallway. After they dashed in, the metal door slammed shut behind them. The room was small. Tim peered out the viewing window as he caught his breath. He didn't see the security guard in the hallway, so they were home free. He pushed the door. It didn't move. There wasn't a knob, so he felt around for a latch. Nothing. He got Mark and Duncan to help him push because the door was stuck, but it simply wouldn't move. They couldn't even wiggle it backward or forward. Mark clicked his flashlight. But it wouldn't stay on they couldn't see another way out tim shivered when did the room get so cold he didn't know how to explain it but suddenly the dark room was even darker the darkness was thick weighing them down making it hard to breathe tim frantically banged on the door mark yelped Something had scratched the back of his neck. Tim looked around. He couldn't see anything. He suddenly smelled the sharp tang of urine. A sobbing Duncan had wet his pants. Mark cried out again. He suddenly remembered he was holding a hatchet. He swung it out the door with all his might, but the door didn't budge. With each swing, the hatchet stuck in the metal. Mark had to yank it free before swinging again. Tim screamed, begging for security to open the door. The door suddenly opened. Light from the security guard's flashlight spilling into the room. The teens babbled hysterically. It was in the room with them, and they couldn't get out. The security guard looked at the three teens oddly and then drew their attention to the door. The door edge was smooth. No lock, or even a latch. There was no way it could have been locked. It swung freely on its hinges. While taking a tour, the guides will show you the axe marks made by the scared teens in the metal door. The ghosts of Waverly Hills aren't fond of people who disrespect their home. In 2001, Charles and Tina Mattingly purchased Waverly Hills, they're slowly renovating the property and have plans to turn it into a hotel and convention center. Currently, they hold tours discussing the history and paranormal aspects of the place. During Halloween, they hold a haunted house. Most popular are their overnight tours, which many ghost hunters take advantage of. the paranormal experiences visitors have had at waverly hills vary widely of course for some the sanatorium is just a creepy old building with an interesting sad history however other visitors have had menacing encounters with a creature called the creeper a supernatural entity has seemingly been drawn to Waverly Hills by all the emotional energy emitted from the property. Others have heard voices or smelled medical supplies or fresh bread coming from a defunct kitchen. Other visitors feel suddenly cold, incredibly sad, or scared, as if they're reliving the emotions of a terminal TB sufferer. Many have seen spectral doctors in white coats. Nurses. Parents mourning their dying child. Ghostly children playing. A little girl who sometimes has no eyes. Or a boy known as Little Timmy. Then there are the orbs. Mysterious bright balls of light that dart around the sanatorium at night. A few visitors have had more sinister encounters. They've been chased by shadow people. They've been physically assaulted by spirits. Some people claim they've been possessed or witnessed a possession when at Waverly Hills. Waverly Hills Sanatorium, originally a community created to comfort and heal tuberculosis sufferers, has become a conduit for the supernatural. A final place to roam for those who were unable or unwilling to pass on from this world. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admeyer and Freddie Beckley. Haunted Places is written by Candace Rogers. I'm Greg Polson.